listeners, it's me, Marnetta Larimer, host here at Impacting the Classroom. As always, we like to kick off our conversation by asking, what's impacting the classroom? This season, we've talked a lot about addressing challenges facing education by focusing on what happens in the classroom. But as far as we know, a child's education is impacted by more than just what happens at school, and what happens at school can have a huge effect on their life at home. So today, we're talking about interacting with families in a way that is respectful of their many varied experiences, including trauma. Today, we're joined by Sean M. Bryant, Director of Professional Development and Adult Learning with the Child Lab at Yale University and Director of Yes to ECE Consulting. Welcome, Sean. Thank you, Marnetta. I'm happy to be here. Wonderful. Is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners about yourself before we get started? Sure. So I am the co-author of Trauma-Informed Practices for Early Childhood Educators and the contributing author of Trauma-Responsive Family Engagement. So I know we're going to be talking about families. Yeah. So I didn't know you were an author as well. I'm going to have to, (laughs) I get an autographed book after this. Yes, you will. Yes, you will. (laughs) Wonderful. So in one of my last episodes, I talked about, you know, who would the actor or actress be to play you in a movie about your life, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? So who would that be for you? Because I am the quintessential Leo, my birthday's in a few weeks, I would have to play me. <laughs> quintessential Leo, quintessential Leo. Crack me up. Yeah. Well, so happy early birthday. <laughs> and yeah, that would be something to see on the screen, I imagine. So yeah. <laughs> here's the <laughs> that you get the opportunity. I still, audience have not figured out who I will be, and I'm still waiting for you to tell me who should play me. All right, so let's jump to business. We're going to be talking about trauma, so it's going to get a little heavy, and I'm really looking forward to this discussion with such an expert. So, you know, the pandemic happened, mm-hmm. right? Big thing. We're still figuring out the effects of the pandemic on children during that time. But here's my question. After coming out of the pandemic and seeing increasing economic difficulty, how has family engagement changed and what should it encompass today? Okay, so great question. I'm going to start at the beginning and then move myself forward. Okay. So we do know that family engagement in this country has not always provided fairness and equity for parents and families and their children. So Sharon Ritchie in her book, Pre-K to Third, chapter six, uh, it talks about like the history of, they call it parent involvement, family engagement in this country. And they go back to the beginning of it and how we used to tell parents, drop your children off and go back home, you don't know anything. Um, and then they said, well, come, you don't know anything, but you know, stick around a while. Then they said, you know what? They're causing too many problems, so go back home. So it was this ping-pong effect that we've had for 150 years with families around education and schooling in this country. And I believe that that still persists today. And the global pandemic really just intensified that in many, many ways. Um, So parent involvement and parent engagement, if you think of it as a continuum, you know, if we think about interactions with families, where, you know, the big difference in terms of family engagement is that the interactions really occur around the context of a collaborative and ongoing relationship. You know, we tend to make better choices and families tend to make better choices around practices and experiences when the goals are centered around what they've identified opposed to what we've identified. 
Um, so if we think of something like a pandemic, we often were telling parents, mimic what we were doing at school and forgetting that at school we have routines and schedules and at home, families oftentimes have a rhythm to their home. And some of that was difficult for families because they were used to the rhythm and we were telling them to create a routine and they're not always synonymous. So if we think of this continuum of moving from involvement to engagement around being responses to a family's culture, their, how they pay attention to time and attention and partnering with families, if those things were able to percolate up to the top during the pandemic, what we found was those parents and families and children were thriving because they didn't experience yet the burden of something else I need to change or something else I'm not doing effectively as a parent. So we actually had some research that happened at the very beginning of the pandemic. So our colleagues at Early Learning Nation told us some things around family involvement and parent engagement around, depending on that kind of program structure and the expectations that we had in early learning settings and what those expectations look like when children got to kindergarten. So they could contribute to changes, both positive and negative in terms of, we know that there's oftentimes a greater emphasis on like academic skills, um, the class size changes. So children who were used to being with, you know, a teacher in seven other peers are now with one teacher and sometimes 30 other peers. And then we know that the frequency of like homeschool connection drastically decreases. So all of those things took place during the pandemic for some children and families who the added kind of stressor was they actually didn't meet the teacher in person in the beginning, or when they were able to meet the teacher, I actually took a trip to Salt Lake City during the pandemic to train a group of early childhood educators. And during the session, it was full day. One of the teachers said, you know, I'm, I haven't met any of these children's parents. And you know, I forgot that we were in a pandemic for a moment. <laughs> I said, what do you mean? Big, beautiful building. She said, they get dropped off at the front door outside and someone brings them upstairs to my classroom. And I was thinking, what? So we ended up spending some time kind of triaging. How do we still engage parents and families when we've never seen them face to face? And what other things could they do immediately to engage them and to reach out and to build kind of connections that we typically build when you see them face to face? but they hadn't thought about, oh, we need to stop and think about this is really happening differently. Not so much just dropping children off and bringing them upstairs, but how am I going to build a relationship as the teacher when I don't have any contact with them at all that's physical and limited contact with them in terms of virtually, if, if at all. So we were actually lucky enough to spend some time kind of thinking about what tools exist, what what mechanisms could they use to reach out to all the families, individual families? How could they share information? And what happened was the knowledge was right there in the room because oftentimes next door, they're doing something that we don't know about. So they all ended up exchanging information and we created this big list of, here's some things that we all could do to engage families. The other thing that comes to mind is, it's old research, but it's resurging. This notion of constrained and unconstrained learning so we know that typically in early education programs and settings, children experience what we call constrained learning. You know, they're learning to count one to three in terms of how can I know the alphabet? How can I know numbers? I'm writing them down. But then unconstrained learning happens at home. 
And this was the pushback that I gave um, some of my colleagues at uh, the National Head Start program around this notion of learning loss. Children are learning differently and it's not necessarily loss. So how can we maintain this strength-based kind of perspective of I may play with shapes and blocks um, and talk about how it feels and how big something is with my abuelito or my granny, um, but they may not open the book and read the book from cover to cover or say, this is the author, this is the illustrator, and this is the spine, you know, we may open to the middle and she may say, ooh, what do you see on the page, Sean? And I say, I see a tree and some flowers. So we're, we're still learning, but it's unconstrained. So we realize that in the middle of the pandemic, instead of saying there was learning loss, how do we hold up and spotlight those ongoing instances where young children we're engaged in daily unconstrained learning. So instead of putting them against each other, valuing both of them, that notion of both and, I think really surfaced for me in terms of parent and family engagement. Yeah, I love that. I hated the term learning loss. I felt like it was so disrespectful, yeah. <laughs> right? Um, as if parents are just sitting you know, at home and they're not doing anything at all with the children. Exactly. Like no idea you know, <laughs> um, how to engage them, you know, in a way that would elevate their understanding and learning around of their environment and the things that they're doing. Um, right, so and it has this effect, Marnetta, that when they hear that too much, whatever they thought they were doing, what often happens is they would stop thinking, well, this isn't helpful. This isn't what I should be doing. Mm -hmm. I'm not a trained early childhood educator. I don't know enough. So I need to just get my child there so that they can teach them, which is this kind of traditional way. And that that actually happened for many parents that they were hearing that resounding message of learning loss and children aren't learning anything at home. So what they were doing, they stopped. Yeah, which also makes it challenging for the teachers, right? Because um, you have an extra load, <laughs> right? And you're, you're frustrated because you're just like, you're not doing anything at home to support, right? Like, so it's just this, like you said earlier, this ping pong thing, right? That's going back and forth and it just really doesn't go anywhere and really harms the children in yeah. the bigger picture. I loved a lot of the things you were saying, you know, you were talking about fairness and equity. And when I was thinking about the pandemic and what happened, you know, where I live and that expectation, as you said, you know, I need you to mimic this school environment at your home for yeah. your child to be successful. I mean, that's inequitable in itself, right? Their internet, <laughs> having techno like technology. I know a lot of families who they were using their internet for the parents to be able to work, yeah. right? So that bandwidth was a big issue. But again, technology, computers, but also if you have this mixed message of you don't know what you're doing, there's a lack of support for the children who were attending online. Right from the parents, because they're just like, I don't, I don't know what I should be doing in the interim, right? <laughs> so definitely. Yeah, pretty, pretty challenging, pretty, pretty hard, but you had some sunshine too, right? Like you were talking about this list that you made about how to engage families, but you didn't tell me anything that was on that list. Like, so what are some of the things you all came up oh, with? So they came up with using that little program. One of them is the Remind app. So, you know, putting all the families in there and sending them messages, which two of the teachers were using and other group was like, I didn't know that that existed um, as a way to communicate in the net. What's the name of it? That other one, see, I don't use it, but teachers can upload pictures, write little messages. So you literally could see in the moment, my kid just did this five minutes ago, um, or they could send them voice messages 
on the, the web-based program around, oh, Sean didn't come to school today. Is he all right? It, you know, what's going on? Here's what we did today. We learned this new thing or we experienced this new thing. We'll do it again, but just for you to know, you know, I hope he's doing all right. Or all of those, that type of information so that they can still connect with parents and families and children. Um, it's class dojo. That's what it is, class dojo. Thank you. <laughs> I kept thinking the word dog kept coming to mind. I was like, it's not dog. It's not dog. Thank you, Marnetta. It was class dojo. That's exactly what it is. That was difficult. I was struggling. I could tell you were struggling and you really wanted to find. <laughs> I knew what I kept saying. It's not the word dog. It's not the word dog. Yeah, I hope not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And even things like Dropbox, where they could have free accounts and upload little videos of what they did with the whole group with parent permissions. So they were really just triaging all these kinds of ways that were in many respects economical and free um, or really low cost that we oftentimes see K through 12 educators using and not preschool educators. Um, but I saw them make that lift to start using all of those uh, resources to communicate with parents and families. And the beauty of it is now that we've, we've, we're kind of, if we truly are out of that, I say stage of the pandemic, they're still able to use those resources right. and kind of leverage what's happening. So it wasn't, we used that during the pandemic, but here's this way I've kind of brought technology into my um, my teaching and my shared space with young children. Yeah, another modality, right? To make those connections and between family and school. Definitely, I'm all for adding things to my tool belt. You can never have enough yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, things, especially as a teacher or well, I mean, educator. It's, mm-hmm. It comes in all. Yeah. Encompasses all. So yeah, I appreciate all of that. Yeah, you said a lot. And thank you for like some of the resources and just the thought around your processes um, so that the listeners can get an idea of how that works. Yeah. So you talked a little bit about this some, but I want to get more specific. Let's talk about family engagement and what it means to be trauma-informed. Oh, my favorite topic these days. Ready. So Dr. Bruce Perry says that trauma-responsive practice is always guided by our understanding of the neurobiology of stress and trauma, right? So what he's really talking about is what we call state-dependent functioning in the literature. And I'm not going to bore you, all your listeners, with that kind of conceptual heavy stuff because I really like to land on the practical stuff, stuff that we can grab a hold to and implement the next day or the day after. So... We all have these kind of internal states, Marnetta, that are always changing along what we call an arousal continuum. So I like to say that arousal continuum is like a staircase. At the bottom is calm and at the top is terror. And then we have all these states in, in between. So the states of our emotions and stress move up and down that arousal staircase throughout the day. And if we move up and down it and think of parents, parents and families' stress response systems are activated, right? We get close to hyperarousal, and we call it fight or flight, or hypoarousal, and it's more of like a freeze or even a, a fawn state across that kind of moving across that continuum, right? So when our stress response becomes less activated, we connect and get closer to calm. Here's this thing. So that parallel process, if I work with parents and families, and I'm really aware that 
I have to have them sometimes connect to my calm. Because when we connect to calm, we think clearer. Our prefrontal cortex, you know, it helps us to be logical and to make decisions and solve problems, right? But sometimes that's just not the reality. So in the book, I, I, I actually offer an example. And I know I'm going to send you signed copies of both. But one of the stories is the real story. I was in Oakland, California at a Head Start program. The parent came in and she was really upset. She had a, a, ch a child with severe disabilities who went to the school district in the morning and she came to Head Start in the afternoon. She was four and a half and she had no like uh, verbal language skills. And she did no sign language. And her mother had these papers and she was angry and she was at the front desk saying, everyone here is trying to kick my daughter out. You're trying to kick my daughter out, which wasn't happening. She had misunderstood what the papers were. And they had mental health consultants, coaches, family advocates, the director. Everyone could hear her at the front desk and no one went to help her. So the director said, Sean, will you go talk to her? I'm the consultant. So I walked out there, you know, and most people in the world are taller than me. You know, I'll say that out loud. So... I really, I got close to her and I kind of just looked up at her and said, you love your daughter. You're supposed to be upset. And she kind of looked at me like, what? And I said, you love your daughter. You're supposed to be upset. I said, would you sit down and talk to me? And she sat down and I sat close enough so that our knees kept bumping. It was all intention on my part. So what I didn't do was say, calm down. If you don't calm down, I won't talk to you. You're yelling. If you don't stop yelling, I'm going to call the police. And these are some things that sometimes our early childhood staff are trained to do. And then she just began to tell me what, what happened. She connected to my calm and was able to access her calm in the way that she told her story, which was important. And then she said, here's what I need. Now I explained to her, I was the consultant, but every time she returned to the school, guess what she was looking for? You. Right, and I said, this woman is the director. These are the family advocates. She was always looking for me. So when we think about interaction and relationship and that her being really stressed, and I know enough to know that what I was met with was her trauma. Those were her past experiences that kind of got ushered to the front, right? Because the other part about this notion of stress and trauma is that our perceptions of threat and fear, they impact our inter internal states and that our perceptions are our reality. So if I perceive Marnetta to be a threat, even though she isn't, every time I engage with her, I'm going to see her as a threat, period, because your, our perceptions become our reality. You know, so when we think about our sensory systems and what do we see and hear and smell, taste, touch, and feel, those are all perceptions that can impact how we engage with families. So if we're not aware of that, what often can happen is a parent and family's prior experience can show up in our early learning setting and they can pull us into their sunken place. So if we're not aware as early childhood practitioners, their sunken place, or sometimes we like to say their volcano or vortex, we can get pulled into it. So then we're not, we're not helpful. So if we think of that arousal continuum, we allow them to pull us right up that staircase instead of anchoring ourselves so that we can you know, situate ourselves at the bottom. So I mentioned that staircase. So if all your listeners would imagine a staircase with at least five steps, if not more, the bottom step is calm, right? But as you move up that staircase, the next phase would be alert, then alarm, fear, and unfortunately, terror. 
right? As our stress increases, you know, that fear and threat, as we move up that arousal state, that's happening to a lot of our families who live in like situations or in environments where they're constantly faced with fear and terror. And our early learning settings are oftentimes the safest spaces for them to land. And we don't realize that. And when they land there, sometimes not the best parts of them show up. Um, and then we react to it instead of responding to it by understanding, oh, this is, you know, trauma that's oftentimes been normalized. And when it's been normalized, it shows up first instead of, uh-oh, some other stuff was going on, which is why it's so important, I think, as early childhood professionals, you know, not to have a, just a, a working knowledge of what trauma is and how it's different than stress, but to work on our own stuff. Because if we don't work on our own stuff, it's so easy for us to be activated and triggered by our parents and families kind of situations or circumstances around the activation of that stress response. You know, so if we think of things that are novel, events or experiences that are unfamiliar, parents and families can perceive those as dangerous. Mm -hmm. Even showing up and there's a new teacher. So if we think about our teacher shortage, if there's always a new person, that's a novel experience that the parent and family and the children can perceive as dangerous. Then it becomes unpredictable. So if they don't have levels of certainty and that predictability, that constant sense of change is, no matter how you classify it, small T or big T, it's trauma, right? And what we rob them of is that personal agency and control when they feel like, I don't have any control over, beginning in this preschool classroom, I don't have any control over where I have to bring my child because I have to go to work and I, they have nowhere else to take them. So that all sounds sad. So I'd like to say on the other side of it, which is a whole nother training, just like stress is contagious, I like to remind professionals that calmness is contagious also. So these things called mirror neurons, they're activated when we witness someone else taking action. So this notion of how do we begin to move toward calmness or a child or a parent gesturing for assistance or we notice someone experiencing emotion. So if I'm walking through the park with my um, four-year-old and I see someone sitting on the bench and my four-year-old might say they're crying. And I might say, yeah, I see the tears. They might be sad, but sometimes we cry when we're happy. But a lot of people cry when they're sad. So I have to name it and explain it because they've noticed it, that whole mirror neuron around how do we see these tears and begin to understand it across a continuum without knowing all that that person is experiencing it demands some things of me as the adult. Because if I don't have a repertoire of emotion and feeling language and don't have that language, when the four-year-old notices it, I might just say, mm-hmm, and just keep walking. So all of those pieces around what kind of, the big question is what helps each individual connect the calm? You know, so one thing I, I know that works for me is when I'm stressed, I spend a lot of time on Zoom. And sometimes I'm in meetings and I have a colleague that says something that, you know, activates my stress response. Because I'm aware, I know that my neck usually gets tense and my shoulders get tight. And when that happens, I keep lotion on my desk. I squeeze some lotion on my hands. And while we're talking, I do like this. And almost 99% of the time, what begins to happen is I immediately start feeling better. And if that doesn't work, I keep some room temperature water that's orange juice right now. 
I sip that because it activates my vagus nerve. So the more we can help professionals understand that we all have this, but when they're working with parents and families who may not have it, if they're building their repertoire of what to do, they can connect to calm. So the more that they're grounded, they can pull them into that situation with them instead of being pulled the other way. You said so much in there. I'm just writing notes because I am a terrible person. The I instantly want to know what kind of magic lotion you're using. Because <laughs> I don't know if that's <laughs> any kind. It's it's not even about the well. Some people like to smell things. Right. But it's really about the the, the movement. So if we if we think about the three states of the brain, I'm giving you a rudimentary definition. Some brain scientists would would say, but this is the one most of us use. So if we think that our understanding our brains are broken into three parts. The bottom part is the stress, the middle part is feelings, and the top part is like our prefrontal cortex. So the bottom, what I call it is the three stages of the brain all have languages that need to be spoken to them. The bottom part of the brain, the language that communicates with the bottom part of the brain is sensation. So when we're stressed, if we do things like I'm rubbing the lotion on my hand, I'm drinking the room temperature water because I'm here, But one of the best things that we can do is actually walk, movement, movement and memory work together in this way in terms of the same way we can get trauma in our bodies, we can work to get it out. And one of the best ways to do that is to move. So I often tell when I'm working with parents in particular, I'll have them recall, I'll say, think of your childhood. What's the one thing from your childhood that you are happy that you brought into your parenting? And what's the one thing from your childhood that you're not so happy that you brought into your parenting that you were taught and what was modeled? Then I say, find somebody else in the room and go for a 12-minute walk with them and share. Every single time across the country when I do this, Marnetta, with parents and families, people come back and someone says, that's the first time I talked about that and I didn't cry. That's the first time that you know I was able to tap into that and finish it all together. Movement is really connected to this this healing that we don't value enough. And I do it intentionally because I want them to say that so that they get two things happen. You were talking to a stranger because I say, pick someone you don't know. Because it's oftentimes a little bit easier to kind of tell a stranger those deepest parts of ourselves sometimes. And then they don't realize that because they're moving and not sitting, sitting still, that there's some healing attached to that. Now, sometimes we need to do it over and over and over. And there's even a type of therapy called walk therapy, but it can be really helpful for adults and for young children, this notion of moving to work through and work with whatever small T or big T trauma they they may have. Thank you for breaking that down. Like you said, we're in this environment, you know, have all these meetings and whatever. So like I fidget with things. And so, yes, I got what you meant with the lotion. (laughs) And I think I just really wanted the listeners to understand, like, this is a normal, right? A normal thing. It's actually a good thing. It has a purpose, right? And to keep doing it. But people are still going to want to know what your favorite lotion is. I'm just saying, (laughs) you you mentioned the lotion, but yeah, and I agree, movement does help, right? Like Mm -hmm. I recommend anybody who's working at home, get a standing desk, right? So that way, you know, you can get those steps in, just like move around while you're having to work or whatever. Um, And it really does just create this calm um, that you may or may not realize is happening. 
I want to add something to what you just said. You reminded me around the movement that we're talking about. So oftentimes people will listen to folk and they'll say, sit with it, sit with the difficulty, sit with it. So my response is, don't listen to that. <laughs> Particularly if you're a female and if you're black or brown, because the research says that you become weathered, mm. meaning sitting with it means you're, it can metastasize in your body, that trauma, that stress, and it actually can what? Lower your lifespan. Yeah. So I, I say, don't sit with it, do something with it. And most of the time doing something with it is this movement around the memory and how movement and memory work together. Appreciate you advocating for my black and brown sisters out there because <laughs> that's right. The strong black woman, that's the right. And we do, we just swallow and hold all that trauma and it does affect us in so many ways. And because we're so busy taking care of other people, we don't take care of ourselves. And, you know, I can't list on my hands how many of my friends, you know, coworkers or whatever are going through some really major health issues at, you know, younger ages than they should because- right of the lives that, not that they're living, but how we're expected <laughs> to <Exactly>. hold on <laughs> to right. things and yeah. our emotions for how it might be perceived, things like that. So I appreciate that shout out. Yeah, no. And, and I think if over, I'm having a really good time with this conversation with you, <laughs> over, over time. So in my, in the book, My Grandmother's Hands, Rosa Dominican talks about this notion of trauma decontextualized in a person we call personality. So we walk into the early learning setting. We say, you know, Miss Eloise has been working here for 40 years. That's just how she is. No, that's not her personality. That is 60 years of trauma that's inside of her body that we all meet and just say, she's kind of cantankerous. That's, she's just mean to everybody. No, that's trauma decontextualized. And he talks about like trauma decontextualized, we call personality. Trauma decontextualized in the people will say, oh, that's their culture. No, that's not their culture. That's historical and generational trauma showing up in the people that they sometimes may have normalized, but that's not normal. You know, it even happens in our workplace. Trauma mm -hmm. in the workplace, we mask as workplace standards. You know, we get the job and they say, you know, we open from nine to five. And then someone says, Marnetta, we all show up at 8.30. Right. <laughs> you know, your, letters, your letter said nine o'clock but we're all working with our computers on at 8.30 and we all don't leave until the work is done. But your agreement letter says, here's your hour, these are your breaks. And then anything beyond that, you feel the pressure of work, which becomes not just oppressive, but stressful and it can become traumatic. So, you know, I think we, on, on our end, we've got to consider how it can show up for us and for parents and families, how they may or may not show up we've got to see it through a different lens of dysregulation. And then if we understand it through that lens, which is more closer to a trauma lens, we walk away with a different perspective about that parent or family. I love what you just said, because it really segues into the next question that I wanted to get to. And mm -hmm. I am looking conversation as well. I feel like in hours, not near enough time for us to spend together. We talk about, you know, how that shows up and how, you know, those years of trauma, right? And like, we just meet the people where they are and we just kind of name it for what it is and kind of make it what we want it to be, where we're, we sit and where we're comfortable, right? So when yeah. we think about that at, you know, from other communities dealing with different types of families, how do these activities of like expulsions and suspensions affect the family unit and create trauma 
And when we think about that trauma that we have sitting in us, right, that we may not <laughs> have let go of, what should school leaders keep in mind when disciplining students? Okay, excellent question. So I'm going to answer this in two ways, answer this in two ways. So the frame for most people around becoming trauma-aware and trauma-informed, initially it was, what's wrong with you, right? And then that, then we shifted to, you know, we've all seen Oprah in Bruce Perry's, you know, kind of, we have that book and we've seen them on YouTube. They recorded the conversation. So we moved to this, what happened to you, right? My pushback is, those are entry points, but that is not the safe place to land. Because the third component is what's strong in you. So mm. as early childhood practitioners, we should be asking parents to locate what's strong in you. And they may not be able to answer it the first time. So when I work with parents and families, another thing I do is I'll, I'll tell them, I say, I'm going to give you six minutes to think about what's the one thing you do well as a parent of a child under age six that you can stand up and teach the rest of us in this room. And the, their eyes kind of go away. And when they come back, what we always hear is, I was thinking about the three things that I need to work on. I never think about what I do well. See yeah. how we show up? And these implicit messages are communicated to parents and families. And then they end up locating the one thing that they feel like they can tell everybody the thing they do well. Then the other part that it's our responsibility is, what can I do to help? And what can I do about it? It doesn't mean I'm going to fix it for them, but the metaphor I like to use is, so if I'm working with Marnetta and I say, Marnetta, identify what's strong in you, you identify that. Then I say, what can I do to help? What's really happening is you're climbing a rock wall. I'm your anchor. I'm holding that rope and I'm anchored to the ground. That's what I'm doing about it as the support in terms of becoming trauma responsive. It's not, I'm not going to climb the wall for you because that's your work and your work alone. But my work, when I get past what's wrong with you, what happened to you, and we engage in that third tier of you identifying what's strong in you, then the fourth piece is, what can I do about it? And to me, that's a more whole version of being trauma responsive that I like to have people to engage in as much as possible. And that same thing applies to young children. So if we think about suspension and expulsion and what happens to families. We know that children who are suspended and expelled, either soft suspension or hard suspension. So a soft suspension is go to the principal's office, go next door to, you know, Miss Smith's classroom. Anytime I'm asked to leave my classroom, mm -hmm. I'm suspended, period. We've got to really understand that. Okay. We actually have, and these are from our colleagues at Early Learning Nation, there's a 37% redundancy rate in content overlap between children in preschool and kindergarten. So the kindergarten teachers are saying, these kids won't sit still, they're bored, they have so many problems, because you're repeating what they already know. So if we think of the pushdown effect and this attachment to suspension and expulsion, that when children are suspended or expelled or parents are constantly called, we know that it actually ruptures the parent-child dyad. That my parents love me, but they're constantly called to come get me. The teacher's saying, speak to them on the phone. They're just delivering negative messages. That will actually rupture the parent-child relationship. So then the school's already seeing Sean as a problem. 
So now my parents see me as a problem. How unhelpful is that when we think of suspension and expulsion in the family unit and how we're creating and adding to trauma? Yeah, because the parents see us as the expert, right? Of, of all yeah. things, sometimes they more credit than we deserve, right? Yeah. And so, yeah, it would shift how they think about their children, depending on their relationship, of course, with the school entities or whatever. So you asked about the disciplining students. I would encourage all schools to review on a yearly basis what's written down and what's implemented around this notion of having guidance policies opposed to discipline. And I think languaging is important here um, because discipline gets close to, I have this three-year-old, this four-year-old, or even this two-year-old. You know, we the research says that in Philadelphia, where I am right now, the two-year-olds in this city were asked to leave toddler programs because they were demonstrating toddler behaviors that the caregivers saw as problematic. Two-year-olds, you know, these are kids in diapers saying you, you're acting like a two-year-old and we want you to act like a four-year-old. Here's the problem. That's not the two-year-old's responsibility. That's us. So, you know, Walter Gilliam's known for saying suspension is an adult problem, not a child's problem. So if we move towards guidance strategies in, in this ongoing and continuous education and learning in figuring out where did these policies come from? Who are they affecting? We know they affect little boys that look more like me than anybody else. Um, why is there a disparity? And then being committed to doing something about it. And I think the first commitment is to say, you know what? We work with families. We work with families. We work with children and families. And what I find is school leaders no longer have to say, we don't suspend children. But if the push, because then that could activate someone's memory, the replacement is we work with children and families. We work with children and families. And I like Stuart Schenker, who's up in Canada. He, he, he lived at the Merit Center. He basically espouses that young children in terms of self-regulation is a social phenomenon. So what he's talking about is at no point should a young child be responsible in terms of self-regulating on, the, on their own. They have to do that with Sean and Marnetta, which means we have to be self-regulated so that they're co-constructing that with us. He says self-regulation is a social phenomenon. And then when we do that repeatedly over time, then they can get to what? Controlling themselves later. So for me, that's that suspension and expulsion piece. What aspect of this child is percolated up where they're saying without using those words, I need you to support me in a different way or some of my needs aren't being met. So instead of saying your problem, we lean in differently. And I'll end with this. We actually know, this is research from the 70s, Marnetta, that little boys, particularly little boys of color who were gifted over time when their gifts were not what honed, academically gifted, their behaviors started to look identical to the little boys with disabilities. So imagine all of our preschool classrooms across the country where children show up quite talented with agency and it's kind of school readiness out of them. So then my behavior starts to what? Look like the other child who needed a different level of support, but who may be more internalized. And if I'm externalized and how I'm demonstrating that, my behavior is seen as problematic. 
and I get suspended or expelled and tagged and labeled without ever realizing that there were all of these gifts and talents there that never got honed. So my plea to leaders and to teachers and anyone listening is to rethink it. If you have discipline um, policies, read through them and, and say, is this efficacious and supportive of developing each individual's child's agency? Does this help teachers develop agency as the teacher to be supportive of individual and groups of children? And then ultimately, how can this be supportive of and connected to what parents and families are doing at home? Yeah, you were talking and all I could think, well, not all I could think of, I was thinking about all of things, right? Just visualizing, you know, because you're just telling so many truths right now, you know, as a mother of two beautiful brown sons, <laughs> right? Um, I've had my share of struggle <laughs> in the school system. And so I've just kind of not, you know, little T trauma, you know what I mean? But just reliving some of those things. But I also, also was thinking about these, early interactions and just how it impacts the dropout rates, right? And students' interest in remaining in school because it's no longer a place that they trust or that they feel seen or heard or that they find value in because they're not getting what they need out of it. Definitely. Definitely. All right. So we can't talk about family engagement without, you know, the, the big stereotype, right? Fathers, right? And missing, <laughs> missing fathers, right? Mm-hmm. So we're talking about family engagement. Let's talk about engaging with fathers, right? And what does that look like? How can we get more of it, right? Talk to me about, you know, being a father and part of this engagement. Okay. So there are two big things that I, because I, I do a lot of fatherhood work in Alameda County in California. Kevin Bromont, he's the fatherhood administrator there. They've been doing great work for a number of years. So Dr. Natasha Cabrera, she's in Maryland, I believe. Her and her colleagues said years ago, they said that, you know, no single definition of successful fatherhood and and no ideal around fatherhood can claim universal acceptance because it depends on the individual father. So I want to start with that. The second piece is the Pew Foundation did some research on fathers and you know, at first I was like, this is a mistake, you know, to the own internalized voice stepping up. And what they did was they compared children up to age five and then children basically ages five to 18. And they really spotlighted a number of fathers, but the three that kind of got pushed to the top were Latino fathers, white fathers, and black fathers. So children up to age five, the remarkable part when they took, they thought about like, feeding and meal prep, dressing and bathing, reading and playing with children. At the top percentile in those three categories were Black fathers. That's never what the news talks about. This no. Is, you, can go to the, you can go to the Pew Trust. Like, so I, I was like, wait a minute. Of course, I was sharing it with everybody. I was like, wait a minute. Why isn't this the narrative that we hear? So it, w- it was kind of refreshing And then at a high percentage, they looked at fathers living with children and fathers not living with children. And and again, the Black fathers outshined the other two categories in terms of birth to five. There wasn't big, big, big shifts, five to 18. There were some shifts, but for me, the population that I generally serve, we're thinking of infants, toddlers, and preschool-age children. 
So those two things I think are really important when we think about engaging fathers richly and deeply as caregivers. We do know there's an uptick in fathers who are at home, they're engaged in meal prep and eating with children. And we know that you know, we have solid research that says when parents and families actually eat meals with children, we engage in talking with them and it has beneficial and lasting effects across the ages around getting older and assisting with homework and reading and talking and those things. So I think there's some key things that I've been saying for a number of years when we think of engaging fathers differently. New York did some, they had a father engagement program and it said, you know, sign up and we're going to teach you some skills. <laughs> and none of the fathers signed up. I, I kind of reworded it, but it, it, it was kind of, sign up and we're going to teach you some things. Nobody signed up. They didn't change the curriculum. They changed the language on the flyer around things you can do with your child. It was focused on the child and they had like 80% of the fathers showed up. So we know that language is important. The first one was a reminder to the fathers that they didn't know anything and they needed to be taught. Right. The second one kind of landed differently as, hey, we know you're engaged here's some other things that you might want to do that you can add to your toolbox. So for me, the first thing we need to do is learn how to start listening to fathers instead of sending messages to dads. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's really crucial. And then once we listen and understand what listening is, it isn't listening that we all know to respond, but listening to hear what do they need me to understand about what they're saying. And then when we do that, we can begin to build relationships with fathers instead of providing early learning programs to dads. Right. It, you know, because they're not the same and we, we think they're the same. And then when we do that, we can move towards kind of highlighting what father's strengths are, even during challenges. They may be having a challenge with the other parent, but if we highlight their strengths, it helps us to not buy into those negative stereotypes. The way that Pew Research I showed up with some negative stereotypes about fathers who look like me. And it was like, woo, the research has completely shifted. Then I think part of our role is to help fathers experiment with new practices. Instead of giving them advice on what to do and how to do it, how do they begin to experiment with, you might like this, your child might, we don't know, but experiment with it. And then this notion of fatherhood and parenting. I think early learning programs are ripe to kind of situate it so that it shows up as a relationship, which is not the same as how do you resist the old ways of building around those kind of formal systems that parents and families are in. And I think lastly, and this is not for just education, but I think of healthcare, social service, all those other places where fathers and their children take up space as citizens, see our relationships with fathers as a critical component yes. to their fathering. Instead of, we oftentimes focus on fatherhood as a set of techniques. <laughs> so if what we've re rethink that and revamp it and see that relationship as a critical component, then we're doing some things differently. We're doing some things differently. I loved everything that you were saying. I know I keep saying that, sound like such a fangirl. I think when I think about, you know, my time in the classroom, you know, in family engagement, it really was built around this expectation that, you know, it was going to be mom, <laughs> right? Maybe grandma or whatever. I'm hoping that we're moving more into a shift of encompassing, right, 
fathers into that, but then also in addition to supporting them, in other, right? Like, so yes, they are still here. Like I should expect to have these rich, the same type of communicate, like with the family as a whole. And yeah, I have these other things that can support fathers as well. So yeah. you there, see- There's something to that though, Marnetta. You just tapped into something. <laughs> and this is, this is literally for mothers and females who are listening. Mothers and females have to see themselves as becoming gateways instead of gatekeepers. Mm. Because the reality is many mothers and many grandmothers and aunties and female teachers have long been gatekeepers. We will say, no, he don't, don't worry. Just tell me, don't tell him, you know, don't call him. You don't need his number. They've been, it's gatekeeping. That's a true statement. That's a true statement. It is. It's, 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 it's gatekeeping. So if they actually see, oh, I'm use this one, even though I, I, it oftentimes is used a different way. There's room at the table for both parents. Right. And that when both parents are actively involved, we know different things are afforded to young children. So whatever ways that they gatekeep, think about turning their gatekeeping into gateways for father involvement. Um, I think yeah. it's important. And I, I mean, I also think as an educator, right, pushing for that, right? Like, you know, so is there like, we know there is a father, is there a reason, right? Like, <laughs> and you not right, not being rude or whatever, but we want to make sure that this experience is the best experience, right? And it involves all the people that we can to make sure that we have this wonderful, beautiful collaborative relationship, right? right, right. That really benefits the children. Mm -hmm. So it could take some push on my end too, right? right. Say, hey, this is important and I want all the people. Definitely, definitely. Which is about the female teacher dealing with her bias also. Because sometimes they'll have that same bias. Oh, he's a dad. He doesn't care. He's just picking them up. I have all the important conversations mm -hmm. with mom. Yes. See, and it all ties back to, right, those experiences, the trauma, right, where you are on that ladder with those experiences. So, mm -hmm. ooh, there's a lot. You, you said a lot. <laughs> <laughs> you said a lot. I want to ask one more question. Okay. I, and I, I would be remiss if I did not ask, right? So since we are talking about fathers and just men more generally, I'm curious if you have any thoughts on how to encourage more men to join our early childhood education workforce. Ooh, that's a big one. That's a quite a provocative question, Renetta. I would say there are many things, but the one thing that keeps percolating up for me is this notion of a welcoming space. One that tells males, you belong here. So the welcoming space shouldn't just say you're welcome, but you belong here. Because I think too many early childhood spaces send invisible but loud messages to males that you don't belong here or you definitely don't belong in the classroom. And we see it in the K-12 also. Men are encouraged to become assistant principals and principals to get out of the classroom, to, to be this other thing within the system. The same thing happens in early childhood. We're encouraged by many females to get out of the classroom. And I think the other part of encouraging more men to join is the compensation has to change. For, for everyone. Who, for, right, who, I love doing this, but I'm charged with quote unquote, leading or supporting my family if that's their family's kind of value. That's a sure way for them to say, I'm going to go do something different, even though I enjoy doing this and it brings me happiness. 
But if the happiness brings me sadness because I can't care for myself or my family, I don't think many people can reconcile that. So for me, I think this notion of a welcoming space that really resonates, you belong here and you're, we want you here and the compensation. Yeah. When we've been talking about conversation shows up in all of our conversations <laughs> um, across this podcast. Hopefully people are listening and just understand the value and why it's so important. Um, but you said a lot there, right? Because, you know, at, as a man, when because then we go back to stereotyping roles, right? So as a man, you know, as a woman, it's okay for me to have a less than, unless I'm a single woman, right? Like, because my income might be secondary in the family, right? And so well, I could see that's a whole nother challenge. I mean, I'm not a guy, but I... That was definitely a perspective that I didn't think about as a head mm -hmm. of house, right? And how more challenging that would be. Because like, I need my dollars, but I could only yes. imagine <laughs> the disparity for men in that position as well. Mm. Last that you on. Yeah, you, we're going to have to circle back. There's like so, <laughs> so much more to this conversation, but we are out of time, unfortunately. Yeah. You said something earlier that I absolutely cannot agree with more. And here at Teach Stone, it's, it's what we say too. Interactions matter, right? Yeah. Those interactions are important. They're impactful. We have to be very mindful of them from the, you know, inception of our contact with different individuals. So thank you for your time, Sean. Some of the things that you said that I want our listeners to remember is, you know, guided strategies instead of discipline, right? Like, so let's think about that and how we can move that forward and lessen the trauma that's happening with our families. Movement, right? Removes that stress. So let's get moving. But of course, lotion, which we still didn't get his favorite lotion, but <laughs> you know. I grab whatever is available. He's just like, whatever's in the house. <laughs> um, I can tell you my favorite, depending on what, like that stress relief by Bath and Body Works is like amazing. I love the smell of like the eucalyptus and like okay. the mint okay. and whatever. And so Sometimes, you know, that's, or I'll burn a candle. So like in moments, uh, it, like you said, the smell, right? Yeah. Um, and then just connecting, you know, to calm and remembering that calmness is contagious. So lots of wonderful quotes, lots of things and nuggets for us to hold on to and hopefully embed into our everyday lives <laughs> as we move forward. Sean, again, this was amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you, Marnetta, for having me. I've enjoyed my time with you. Wonderful. Listeners, you can find today's episode and transcript on our website, teachstone.com slash podcasts. And remember, as always, behind great leading and teaching are powerful interactions. Let's build that culture together. Thank you to today's team. Marnetta Larimer is our host. Our producers are Isabella Henriksen and me, Megan Cornwell. Editing help is from Castos. You can find Impacting the Classroom on our website at teachstone.com slash podcasts, where you can also listen to our other show, Teaching with Class. Impacting the Classroom is a Teachstone production.